0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation contains content of a highly sensitive nature. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know needs support, Lifeline is there for you on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.
1: Martin Flanagan is a much-loved sports writer. For many years, he wrote about AFL and other things for the Age newspaper. Martin has written many books about football, and the game has an important place in his new memoir. But the centre of this story is something much darker. Martin attended a Catholic boys' boarding school in northwest Tasmania. Three of the priests who were on the staff when Martin arrived as a 10 year old were later sent to prison for sexual crimes they committed against boys in their care. Martin wasn't a victim of this abuse, but it was a dark shadow that passed right next to him. For many years, he didn't want to revisit his boarding school days, which he considers the most wretched period in an otherwise good life. Instead, Martin turned towards the happy things. Football, writing, travel, his wife and family, but the time came for him to go back to that period, to look at what had happened, where responsibility lay, and what healing might look like. Out of that reckoning with his past, Martin has written a beautiful, tender book called The Empty Honour Board. Hi, Martin. Hello. As I say, you spent much of your journalism career writing about football and your first gig as a sports writer was with the Launceston Examiner, where you were the ghost writer of a weekly column. How did that work?
0: Well, I arrived at the Examiner and um, I was made ghost writer for a character called Phil Manassa. Phil had had his 15 seconds of fame in the 1977 grand final when he kicked a goal of great audacity and skill. And so he was the big name in the local competition So the first week I rang him up and I had my headphones on and I said, all right, Phil, you say what you want to say and I'll type it down. And there was a pause and he said, it's not like that, mate. He said, you ask a couple of questions, I'll give you a couple of answers. (laughs) And um, it became apparent to me that Phil was happier if I didn't ring him, but I still had to get his tips. And so one week Penguin were playing La Trobe and I asked him who he thought was going to win and he said, they'll draw, they're as bad as one another. (laughs)
1: So was that what you wrote up in your column?
0: So I listed <laughs> Phil's tip as a drawer and they drew. And overnight the column became a sensation. So after that I, I was, and Phil didn't mind if I didn't contact him, so I was able to write whatever I liked. And I created a, a sort of a fictional Phil, who was this Byronic, lonely, heroic figure who made wittier sides that were offensive to other teams. And at the same time, with my own tipping, Mum, uh, Mum always loved to be involved, so I said, Mum, you can do the tipping for me. And Latrobe were having a bad year, but she kept on tipping them. And I said, Mum, why, why do you keep tipping Latrobe? And she said, because Grandad Leary barracked for them. And Grandad <laughs> Leary had been dead 50 years. So I had Grandad Leary tipping from the grave and I had this fictional character. But essentially for me, sport has essentially always been about fun. It's literally about play.
1: Once you began covering the AFL Grand Final from the MCG, who would you ring up from <laughs> the stands? Well,
0: Mum loved Mum loved what the Irish call the crack, and um, and so yeah, I, I, I rang her from footy grounds all around Australia, and I remember being in Darwin and covering a, a game the Tiwi Islanders were playing, and I sat behind them, and so Mum could hear excited footy talk in Tiwi, <laughs> uh, but. On grand final day, I'd always ring her before the match and often at halftime and plug her into the excitement of the day. She loved that.
1: Where did you start life, Martin?
0: My dad was headmaster of Longford Primary School. So I spent my first eight years there and that was the most beautiful place, Longford in northern Tasmania. And I had a very happy childhood. And then when I was eight, we went to Rosebery on the west coast of Tasmania, which was like another country. It was a mining town. It was rougher and tougher. You know, I'd never seen a drunk in the street. and uh, saw two women fight one day. So it was completely different sort of place.
1: What were things like at home between your mum and dad?
0: Well, dad had been to the war. He'd been on the Burma Railway with Weary Dunlop. So he had seen a lot of death and he was then, while still a prisoner, he was between... Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the bombs were dropped. So he'd seen a lot and he basically spent the rest of his life thinking about it. And so he was, he was a very quiet man. We hardly spoke. And mum was, at that stage of her life, a very fierce Catholic and that was where she and I sort of fell out very early on because I just didn't connect like in my lad life, I've met some really impressive Catholic people and I've got some great friends who are Catholics. One of my close friends is an elderly nun. But as a kid, I, I did not connect with the mythology of the Catholic Church and I did not connect with its rituals or its language or its costumes. And so, yeah, I got sacked for inattention as an altar boy <laughs> when I was about eight.
1: Inattention.
0: Inattention, yeah. Um, Missing my cues and and that upset my mother greatly. So it put her at an odd odds for a long time.
1: Your older brother, Tim, is closest to you in age. How big an influence was he on you?
0: He's been been an enormous influence on my life. Um, He was third, I was fourth. He likes going places. I like being taken places. So when he started school when he was five, I was two and a half and he took me. (laughs) Took you along? Yeah.
1: (laughs) What did the teacher think about that?
0: The teacher put up with me. So so I went to school with him from the time. (laughs) And so when I was three going off four, they started me in school. So the effect of that in boarding school was that I was a clear year younger than everyone else. So that meant when the tsunami of adolescence hit and you're in a place with open showers I was in a class with the young men and I was still very visibly and apparently a boy. But Tim, yeah, Tim, he's just always looked after me. In my years when I was travelling the world and I knew if i ever got into trouble and got chucked in the clink somewhere, he would, he would come looking for me.
1: What advice did he give you before you even started at boarding school? What did he tell you the two rules for surviving school He were? said the
0: two rules <laughs> were well, you don't dob and you don't suck. I didn't hear that again until I was finished my law degree at university and I was working in and out of Hobart Prison. And that were the two rules of Hobart Prison, don't dob and don't suck.
1: When you were sent off to, to boarding school where Tim already was, you yeah. were just 10. How did it look to your eyes, Martin? Like, was it a grand kind of place?
0: Um, well, I'm, I, I have a very vivid memory of my first day because... I wasn't close to either of my parents, not really, and I wasn't. And, you know, I thought it was a bit of an adventure. You know, I was glad enough to go, and I never got homesick in the six years that I was there. It was a red brick building uh, that was shaped like a dog's leg. It was crooked, and it was double storey. And so at one end, there were six classrooms on top and six below, and at the other end were the dormitories, so the junior dormitory had 80 kids in it. Your beds were a separate, uh, I don't know, 30 centimetres. You had a little chest of drawers and then there was a big Constantina curtain and then there was another 60 kids or so in the, uh, in the senior dormitory and then at the end of that were the priest's quarters.
1: You say that you had to shower, you know, in the open, there were no doors. Was there any privacy anywhere?
0: No, there was no privacy and um, that psychologically that played an important part. No privacy meant that you are in a place where you were both known intimately and not known intimately. But the most personal things could be known about you and they'd just go round to school and you could have a humiliating (laughs) nickname for life by lunchtime. But that was also what made the priest's rooms attractive was that they were the only private places in the school. And if you went up and saw a priest, you know, it it was just relaxing to be in their room and to be in a place that had angled light. Maybe they'd have a few pictures of paintings because there was some art in the place, but very little. It was sort of starkly utilitarian.
1: In every memoir I've ever read of boys boarding schools, from George Orwell to Roald corporal punishment plays a really central part what form did that take at your school?
0: We were caned and um, you had to go up at night after you'd changed into your pyjamas. So we, we always thought the day boys got off a bit lighter because they could go and they'd be wearing their school trousers with their underwear underneath. So, yeah, I, I got the cuts. For, they called it the cuts.
1: What sort of things would, would result in a kid getting the cuts?
0: Oh, anything. Being laid out of the dormitory, having papers under your desk... Talking in class. Um, So, really trivial. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, there was an order, and that was how the order was enforced. Yeah. But the way they gave the cane mattered a lot. Like, there was one fella who was a good bloke, I think, and he didn't hit you very hard, and he made a joke out of it. And that was one experience. But there was another fella. He was into the ceremony of it. It was like being led to the block in the Tower of London and he was a very big man and, and it's a very dramatic thing. It's a dramatic interaction that changes your relationship and um, he was into the power of it.
1: What was that like for you as a, a little kid to experience that kind of sadism?
0: Well, early on, I, I was 11 in a couple of weeks and our teacher was out of the class and um, the scariest priest, I call him Herman, he just appeared at the door of the classroom. He was a very big fella. And the noise in the room evaporated and then he said my name and he just beckoned and he walked and I had to walk after him. And, um, and it took me into a whole other sphere of sensation and the only thing I could compare it to at that time, when I was eight, in the bush at Rosebury I nearly stepped on a snake, and I was amazed at the, the scream that tore out of my throat. Well, this guy, some of the older boys had told me he, he hit you so hard he could he could split a pillow with a cane. He didn't talk to you; he just marched you. Towards his office, and I remember the floor was sort of swirling beneath my feet, and this heat running through my body. Then he just told you to stand outside his office and waiting for corporal punishment is in many ways worse than corporal punishment. And then he, he took me in and I didn't know why he'd called me out. I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And I, I asked him and he went off. He actually terrified me. And I started crying and sort of begging him. Only time in my life I've ever begged anyone. Anyway, he came around and he held me very tenderly, sort of like a woman would. And uh, in more recent times, it has been alleged that in a similar incident, he's had a boy on his knee and put his hand inside his underwear.
1: There's something unspeakably cruel about that mix of, of violence and tenderness uh, for, for a little child uh, to experience. You know, in any system like that, that's designed in a way to break the spirit. There are individuals who can't be broken. (laughs) Tell me about Menno Thompson.
0: Oh, Menno. Not only what you just said about people who can't be broken, but there was a kid called Brushy Matthews. The kids, kids had run away couple Of kids head out in the bush. This guy, Brushy Matthews, in 1965, he got from the northwest coast of Tasmania to Surfers Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> he
1: must have become a legend with that oh, kind of run,
0: mate. He was a legend. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I never asked him about it, and I don't know the detail of the story. But when I went there, you were told that's Brushy Matthews. <laughs> Mano Thompson, he was a legend. He was the kid, you know, they could not break Mano Thompson. And everyone in the school knew they couldn't break him and he got he got 240-odd cuts in one year, I think, and um, that would leave your ass looking like a piece of medium-rare steak Cause because of all the nude showers, everyone knew who got what because uh, you'd bruise for about a month after each one. Uh, so if you were getting four or five a week, <laughs> it was common knowledge. And he was a really different-looking, he was different, totally different sort of person and he looked like an Eastern European film director from the 70s. He had these <laughs> funny glasses and he had this funny energy and he dressed in a really distinctive way and he was, uh, he was, he was dead at 19 in a, in a motorbike accident and Tim and I still talk about Mano. He's our James Dean. He's <laughs> our rebel without a cause.
1: The closest you came to A Great Escape happened with the school band one day.
0: <laughs> well, you, you slid out of bed in the morning to prayers. You had prayers before every meal. You had prayers before every class. You had to go to chapel every day. And I, I didn't relate to, particularly in the early years, to the teaching. And I just sort of started not listening. And I sort of practised the art of not listening But that particular day I was in the school band, which I didn't enjoy, and uh, our drum major was out the front and he said, turn right, and I turned left. In a band, you've got your music right up on a stand and it's right up in front of your face. And he said, quick, march. And uh, everyone marched right. I marched left and the kids behind me marched left. (laughs) And we kept marching, kept playing. (laughs) <laughs> and we marched all the way down the drive and out of the school. <laughs> so it was my one fly over the cookers last night.
1: I think that gives Brushy a run for his money. I love that. Uh, you you read Lord of the Flies when you were 14 yeah. and it became a touchstone book for you. Yeah. How does that story of boys left alone to govern themselves relate yeah. to your experience at, at the boarding school?
0: Well, because I didn't really relate to the religion, I paid it lip service, but it formed no part of my inner self, of my my soul. And so for me, there were two cultures. There was the culture of the priests and their religion and then there was the culture of the boys. And I always thought the priests were like the the American gunships in Vietnam. They could control a village while they were there and hovering over the top of it. But as soon as they flew off, it was the boys' culture. The reality was you're living in a juvenile culture. You know, I was there six years. Each year was different. Each of the first three years was worse than the one before. Each of the last three years was better than the one before, and the last year was a lot of fun. But the critical year for me was the third year, and that's when adolescence hit. And before that, I'd seen physical violence among the boys, I'd seen bashings, which really upset me, and I'd seen a form of bullying I'd never seen before, where kids were held in circles and not let out. And twice I saw kids sort of break and go rushing around with snot hanging down their face.
1: What were you able to do as a kid when you when you saw things like yeah. that that you knew were wrong? What could you do?
0: Yeah, so so I'm a sports writer, and you know I like boxing, and I've covered world title fights, but Boxing and bashing are two different things. And bashing's when someone can't defend themselves. In my first year, I saw saw it three times, and it affected me profoundly. And I felt this colossal shame. I felt that I should be able to stop it, but I couldn't. And then, in my third year, it got more sophisticated and one night, these voices in the dark taunted the boy in the bed next to me and I saw him weeping. And uh, and then it came my turn and I was what they call in British boarding school sent to Coventry. And um, if you're someone who sees God and other people and other people sever that social link, you're in a fair bit of trouble. And so that was when I prayed to the God I'd been taught to believe in, which was our Father who art in heaven. And he wasn't there. And because of my inability to respond morally to some of the things I'd seen, I didn't think there was anything inside either. So uh, when I finally came out of that, I'd never been a bully. I hadn't stopped bullies, but I'd never been one. And um, for 10 minutes or so, I crossed over to the other side because uh, all, with all these acts of bullying that are done in public, there's always a chorus supporting them. And uh, I joined that chorus and I saw the damage that was done. At that moment, my life changed. This black-white descended upon me. There was guilt and fear and shame. And so uh, at the age of 14 when I read... Lord of the Flies, I understood it exactly. I identified with Ralph because he's the boy who has some sense of civilised behaviour and in the end his inability to create that breaks him. And I knew Jack, he was the king of the bullies, but the boy who haunted me was Piggy. There's always a Piggy. Like in in The
1: Lord of the Flies there were no wise elders there to offer you a a model of of how to react or to care for you, but you found some ways out. How important was the discovery of girls for you, Martin?
0: Um, It was everything. (laughs) Two things, that and sport, because I believe in yin and yang and this was a world with no yin. There wasn't that other energy, there wasn't that other life. And um, so I'm in a state of spiritual despair, (laughs) and I go to this party, I'm 13, and uh, the first night I heard the Beatles' Sgt Pepper album, so it was a great night, and I met this young woman, and she was older than me, I think I amused her, and uh, at a certain point she kissed me, and she was a beautiful kiss, and... I can only describe that experience as transformative. I went from the spiritual desert to Kakadu <laughs> <laughs> in a single instant. And suddenly there was this other world. And in the same year, East Devonport came from nowhere to win the 1968 Northwest Football Union Premiership. And their captain coach, Graham Gypsy Lee, I didn't know at the time, but he. He was the first player of Tasmanian Aboriginal descent to play in the AFL. He was a great player and he was a great coach. I used to go and listen to him. I loved the the way he spoke to his players and I saw how he created a spirit and the way everyone could be part of the spirit he created. And East Devonport never won anything. They'd come last five of the previous six years and it was a fairy tale and I saw this fairy tale come true. So he, he, he really elevated my sense of sport as theatre, and I loved him. And as I said earlier, each year was different. But in my last year when I was 16, by which time, I'd had some wonderful experiences <laughs> with young women. And the most important of them was uh, when I was 14, we got let out for a party, and again I, I ended up with a young woman who was older than me. And it was on a farm and we went for a walk and we ended up in a barn. And um, we lay together in the barn, which was magical. And uh, we just lay there for a long time. And it was this magnificent Tasmania, cold autumn night. And everything was glistening and it was calm. And you know, if if I had to choose a song for that night, it would be Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. And it was magic. And the next day I woke up and the magic was still with me. And we had to travel home in uniform on public transport, but the brave boys always hid their uniforms and hitchhiked. And so I hid my uniform that day and hitchhiked. And I honestly think it. It was the most important day of my life because the beauty of the day, the the night had been perfectly cold and clear and all the stars and now the day was perfectly clear with a warm sun and the colours were more brilliant than I'd seen. But every time I hopped in a car, because I was only a kid, because they were never going to see me again, people told me stuff. they tell me stories. And Australia in the 1960s was a really quiet, introvert culture. And people hardly ever said anything, and that was part of the fascination of sport for me, because out on the sports field, you saw inside people. You saw you saw beauty, you saw grace, you saw folly, you saw foolishness, you saw violence. You know, the, it, its fascination for me was the sort of fascination that I've seen a lot of actors have for the theatre. But this day... I heard real stories. People told me real stories about their lives. And I knew that stories were the currency of my life, that they were the wealth. I coveted. But I also discovered the road. The road. Jack Kerouac on the road. The promise of the road is nothing behind you, everything in front of you. Well, that suited me. Nothing behind me, everything in front of me. And so after that, well, I went back to the school and I was in the school. Part of me was always outside it, so it never really got to me after that, never really affected me, because I knew there was this other world out there, and I just could not wait to get into it.
1: This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. This part of Martin's story includes reference to pedophilia. Martin, your discovery of girls and sport and writing all helped fortify you against the traumas of life inside that boarding school. But there were boys there who were being sexually abused by priests. Three priests from your time at the school have since been convicted and served time in prison for those crimes. But in your early years at the school, was it something you had any awareness of, do you think?
0: At the end of my second year, uh, I heard some kids laughing about a priest. who used to get them in his room and wrestle with them, and they were laughing about the fact that when he got up, he had what they called a bone, which was an erection. And around the same time, my brother Tim heard the same story. But I didn't really think anything of it.
1: There were other boys who did not escape a really traumatic experience at the hands of those priests yeah. who were in charge. Have you wondered how you managed to well, to escape it? Well,
0: well, I think there's a number of things. Like I didn't talk to my parents much. I didn't tell them anything. But I did tell my brother Tim and he never... Backed off. He, he always said what he thought. And I would have told him, and he would have done something, and I think they would have known that. And he would have told my parents. And the priest had called Herman, the one who terrified me, he did it to Tim. I didn't know this. He only told me about t- <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> He's 70. But he told Mum, and Mum came up and fronted the priest. So they knew that Mum. I think they call him now an active mother. Uh, but also I, I have my brother.
1: You did encounter things as a student, Martin, that, yeah. that other people, including your wife, had said to you, hey, actually, this was abuse. Yeah. Has that changed the way you've, you've thought about any of the interactions you had with priests while you were a student there?
0: Well, when I was 16, I got a football injury. And a priest gave me a rub and he got me to take off my pyjama trousers. And um, my wife, who was a school principal, says that's sexual abuse, but it didn't bother me. And I think one of the reasons it didn't bother me was the culture of the place, nudity was part of the place. It was an everyday part of the place. But I also think that happened in my final year by that time, I'd had experiences with young women and if there was one thing I wasn't confused about, it was my sexuality. And I think some of the damage this stuff does is to people who, who don't know who they are. And um, I think I was much more at risk when I was 11 and I was in, at night in my pyjamas in the room of a repeat, the repeat offender And um, some of the big kids put me up to asking him for a sex lecture. Basically, all I knew about sex was what he was telling me. And um, if he told me to do something, I I reckon I would have done it, but that didn't happen, so.
1: A thing that that did happen in your final year at the school was that a younger kid came and asked you to see what one of the priests had done to a boy. Yeah. What happened? What did you see?
0: So that's in my last year. I'm the deputy head boy. And um, myself and another senior boy were called out of evening study and by a kid who I think he was about 12, he said, come and see what they've done to this boy. And I went out and there's this boy and he's shaking and shuddering. And he turned around and he was in his pyjamas and he lifted the top and he had semen sprayed up his back and they named the priest... And um, because Dad had been a headmaster and because he'd had some big dramas to deal with, I'd I'd eavesdropped on them and Tim had told me a bit about it and I knew how Dad handled it and I knew that it was a scandal. I knew that it was a matter of doing your duty and um, I didn't find that at all difficult to do. Myself and two other senior boys went and told the rector and... They shipped the priest out of the state at the end of the year. And because um, I did a law degree at university and because I understand the difference between evidence and hearsay, I always thought that would come back to me. And 30 years later, I got a, a call from the police. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly how the policeman did it, but he did it very well. He didn't lead me. He He just presented me, took me to a certain door. And did I have anything to say? And um, I'd waited all along. I'd I'd, I'd made my mind up years before that if ever I was contacted, I would speak, testify. And I had at times thought of contacting the kid, but my experience as a journalist is that you can't go blundering into people's lives with that sort of stuff, no matter how well-intentioned you are, because they may not have told their families and they may not, Want to be reminded, so I hadn't, but um, the biggest difficulty with that was um making sure that this memory you have is that's thirty years old that you're sure it's true, so I spent a lot of time sort of interrogating myself and but every time I replayed the memory, it was the same. it was the same order, the same people, and so I decided that if in court they said to me, you know had you know that memory's true, I would have said it. That's what I would have said. Well, all I can say to you is that it returns to me in the same way, same order, same characters. So I actually, apart from the rigorous self-examination you've got to do about your memories, I didn't find it hard to give evidence.
1: That's many decades after the fact, though. At the time, you did your duty and yeah. told the, the senior person in the school yeah. and it then really was one of the many things from this pretty awful time in your life that you just wanted to move away from. Yeah. What, what was the last day of school like for you? <laughs> How did you leave this institution?
0: Well, I'll never forget. Uh, a day boy came, he had a car, it was a blue valiant. Six of us got in, someone had bought the beer, someone had bought the cigarettes, and we drove out... And I opened myself to the question, as we're going down, what did those six years mean to me? And the answer was nothing. And I thought it meant nothing as in, you know, nothing that existed, but it actually meant nothing as a form of existential despair, that which would return to me later.
1: The initial days, months, years after ending a time at school were full of all of the things that that place had denied you, you know, ideas and travel and love. And you met Polly, the excellent woman who'd become your (laughs) wife, and, and set up home together in Tasmania. But what happened as you were awaiting the birth of your first child?
0: Well, I went to university and they were great years. I met my first love and that was great. But then it exploded, and that had in fact shielded me. And as I was traveling the world, I became aware that there was something was wrong. When I took drugs, I became aware of the shadow It was getting closer. And then uh, Polly and I married, and we got a house in the most beautiful part of rural Tasmania, the northeast. And she was pregnant. And things couldn't have been better. But that was when I started having panic attacks and uh, weird thoughts that became weirder and weirder. It started to scare me. And Descartes, before he nearly went mad, he said, uh, it's possible that this life is a dream and that all my perceptions are false. And I got out to that sort of
1: point. What did your, your brother Richard suggest that you do?
0: Uh, well, I told him and he's a very brave man and he said uh, he'd read in a Buddhist text that when vague fears overtake you, overwhelm you, ask fear its name. So I did and it said, boarding school and I thought, oh God, no, please. You know, I hadn't thought about it for years, didn't want to think about it, but then I started thinking about it And I started to realise that, you know, if you get confronted with adult moral dilemmas while you're still a child, you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail. And in the end, what you know of yourself is failure. And I'd never spoken to my father about anything like this, but I told him. And he said, when they came home from the prison camps, they were told they might have feelings like that. And that was good because it meant I wasn't alone. I thought I was totally alone. But he also said he'd heard an Anglican clergyman say once that life is like feeling your way through a dark room. And that was the critical, the critical clue because I stopped trying to find the answers in my intellect and I just trusted my senses. And I also began to keep a diary of any image or thought that consoled me or cheered me. And then I'd work them into poems. All came to a head one day because I feared, I feared I was going mad. And I did fear suicide. Not because I ever felt the desire to do it, but because my mind was running so fast and I didn't know where it was headed. But anyway, this day this shadow came across the paddock out me I turned around and shouted at it and I said, I have a right to be. And after that, it was never as bad again. And that's when I started the Examiner and and journalism was daily and it was ordinary and it was sane and I wanted sane. And that's why sports were on I just had fun. (laughs) I I couldn't take it. (laughs) I love sport and I can take it seriously, but at another level I can't.
1: So this... Return to sanity and and embrace the ordinary and, yeah. and immersing your life in just the experience of being a partner yeah. and a dad and the busyness of that. And, and this school experience was at a, a distance. Yeah. It reappeared when you were asked to, to appear in the trial against that, that priest who was convicted in 2007 and then that was followed by the convictions of two more priests who were there at your time in the school. In distancing yourself from the school, Martin, you'd also kept at a distance from the boys you were there with. Yeah. How did that start to change?
0: Well, the reason I started writing this book was in 2018, 2019, there were a series of stories which were entirely valid by an ABC journalist, Henry Schwartz about the school. And they culminated with a story on... I'd like to think my book is a book of heroes. One of the heroes is the local parish priest, Johnny Gadauskas. And he came out and said he'd been sexually abused at school when he was a kid. And then the Pell thing landed on top of it. And suddenly the world was full of opinions. Opinions, opinions, opinions. Everyone had an opinion. And they were all binary. It was all black and white. It was all shouting. And one day I said to my brother, Tim, don't you think it's strange That all these people who weren't at the school are certain they know what happened and you and I were there and we're not? And he said, yes. He thought it was strange. And I kept on waiting for something actual to appear, but nothing did. It was just opinions by people who didn't know. And they made out it was black and white and it was really grey. And that greyness was part of me. And it drove me nuts. So that's when I started writing it. But meantime, my brother Tim who's had cancer twice in his life. So it's made him think a lot about what matters. And he started connecting up with blacks we went to school with because I'd avoided the people I went to school with. I'd known some at uni and at the uni footy club, but I'd basically avoided them. And Anyway, he organised this lunch this day. And 12 of them came. And it was, it was such, it was, it was this amazing day because it was so gentle. And I think everyone was thinking, you know, you know what the f*** happened back there? What, what was that? And, um, and, of course, all the bad news had descended on the school I don't think it's the case, you know, it's not the case that everyone knew everything that was going on because it went on behind closed doors and a lot of it, most of it wasn't spoken about. So I think to some of these people it was just, they were just bewildered. But there was this gentleness. And there was one guy in particular who came, who had a uh, physical impediment and a speech impediment, very bright guy, really cheerful man, really impressive fellow. But he was, he would have been an obvious target for bullying. And he came and he, and there was only goodwill there. And I thought, I thought I really liked these blokes. And so that started to change everything. And one of them was a fellow called Tony Newport. And I'd known him at school, but he was in Tim's class, so he was a few ahead of me. I hadn't known him well. We hadn't met for 50 years and we met up and we thought the same about so many things and I was just, I was so impressed by the man he'd become. Anyway, the school decided to hold this day of lament for the victims of sexual abuse, which Johnny Godowskis made happen and another guy, Kevin O'Sullivan, and knew he was going to go. The young man said, I'm going, will you come with me? I think we ought to go for the blokes that happened to. Because I had real trouble with it, because I have real trouble with religious language. Like, I have real trouble with political correctness because they, they assume belief. And I, I don't necessarily believe. I, wanna, I have to find my own way into that. And so, you know, if I went and it was a religious ceremony, I'd find that really hard because part of me would want to believe and part... So anyway, we went and it was up the back of the town and it was in this rhododendron garden, beautiful, and the school had organised it to their great credit. And um, these three blokes got up to speak after the introductory part. And the first bloke I knew, and he'd, he'd gone away to become a priest. His name was Peter DeWire. And I remembered the excitement about him going away to become a priest. That was a real big deal in Catholic families, particularly working-class Catholic families, because it made him part of the the aristocracy, the church, and, you know, they knew bishops, and they'd been to the Vatican, and they were doing God's work, and so it was really something. And this bloke's come back to his hometown And it's one thing to make speeches at conferences in Sydney and Melbourne where everyone's sympathetic and in tune, but to go back to the place you're from, which used to be routinely described as the most conservative political electorate in Australia, and to tell the people there who were so proud of you for becoming a priest that it wasn't like that at all and that he was trapped into a sexual relationship with a priest before he went... It was just one of the most extraordinary, powerful speeches I've ever heard in my life, and I had so much respect for him. And um, the next fellow got up, Kevin O'Sullivan, who's a chaplain in the Air Force, and he'd been trapped into a sexual relationship with a priest, and he spoke really honestly about the effect on his sexuality. He spoke really honestly about pornography And men don't speak honestly about that sort of thing. They might speak about it coarsely. But you very rarely hear anyone in my life. I've, I've never heard anyone speak honestly about it in public. And I've never heard anyone speak about it in public with their wife standing beside them to the congregation, to the parish. And I admired him so much. And I admired his wife so much. And the third guy was a guy, a university professor called Greg Lehman and he's a very gracious intellect, and he brought grace to the day. And at the end of it, it's like being in the rooms after a big win in a footy match. The spirit that was released was just phenomenal. It was just amazing. That's how it was for me. Anyway, uh, when I wrote the book, I showed the manuscript to all the major people in it, and... um, I wrote to the three guys that had spoken that day and I said if they wanted to read the manuscript they could and I heard back from Greg and Kevin but I didn't hear from Peter and then I heard that he had cancer and then I got a letter from him saying that he was giving up on the treatment and going into palliative care but he'd like, he'd like to read the manuscript. So uh, I sent it to him and I said if he want to write something I'll put that at the end of the book. So uh, that's how the book ends and the story he tells is that having given that speech, that when you really put yourself out there and give a speech in the moment that follows it, before anyone responds, you don't know if it's an act of madness. You don't know, you may have connected with no one. But, I mean, I don't know how many of us, there weren't many of us, boys that I knew, maybe a dozen, maybe less, but we all got to him and got round him, said that was a Great speech, mate. And and that's how the book ends with him thanking us that day.
1: You talked, Martin, about that experience as as a boy, as as a teenager, of that terrible feeling of moral shame, of being helpless before some outrage. Yeah. It feels, listening to you and having read the book, that this is an act of countering that because what you've written has taken such moral courage and grace <laughs> and, and has offered that to the younger you and, and all those boys you're at school with.
0: Well, it's very lovely of you to say that.
1: <laughs> Thank you for being our guest on Conversations. <laughs>
0: Thank you. You've been, you could not have been kinder to me.
1: Podcast broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Martin Flanagan's memoir is called The Empty Honour Board. And if this conversation has raised issues for you, we've got a list of organisations you can contact at the Conversations website. Please reach out. That's what those organisations are there for. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.